I'm glad that you have come back again uh, tonight. Last week, we started a, a three or four week series on what does Scripture say about caring for the needy. And we're going to continue that tonight, next Sunday night, as we continue to look at some Scriptures and to think about what does Scripture say that the believer's responsibility is in regard to caring for the needy. Now, last week when we started talking about this, we noticed some things uh, that were some, some fairly difficult truths as we examined Scripture. One of those things uh, that we saw is that God judges those who do not care for the needy. Uh, one of those surprising Scriptures that we looked at and saw was Ezekiel 16, which said that the sin of Sodom was failing to care for those in need. And that was a, a Scripture that maybe jumped out to some of us. It wasn't just that they were oppressing the poor. But what it says is that they were forgetting about the poor and about the needy. And so God judges those who, who do not care for the needy. And we saw that, that God, in part, measures the integrity of our faith by how we care for those in need. And we looked at passages like Matthew 25, in which, and God said, let there be light. <coughs> and uh, we looked at Matthew 25, in which there were uh, sheep and goats uh, that were divided. And what was the criteria that Jesus used? In regard to, it, to that, he said, well, those on my right, the sheep, cared for those in need. They, they fed those who were hungry, gave drink to those who were thirsty, clothed those who were naked, visited uh, the sick and those in prison. And those who were the goats who were cast out were those who didn't do those things. So these were some tough truths that we looked at. And my guess is that for a lot of us, this isn't something that's really been like hardcore in our radar. Not something that we've spent a whole lot of time really dwelling and thinking about. Well, I want us to continue thinking about this. Last week, what I did is I almost just bombarded us with Scripture. I can't remember 20, 30, 40 different passages that we looked at as we thought about this. And the purpose of that was just to help us see this is all over Scripture. Tonight, I want us to focus just a little bit more as we deal with the book of Amos. But before we get to that, I want us just to consider a few issues. And if you have your note-taking sheet, you can follow along with this uh, to help you uh, follow along with, uh, with what I'm saying. But there are just a few issues that I want us to consider first, just to maybe clarify a few things before we dive into Amos. The, the first question, or the first issue, really is, who are the needy? When, when we're saying here that Scripture says that we need to be caring for the needy, the first thing that we need to think about it is, who are the needy? Who are those people? And a lot of times, our, our immediate thought is the poor, those who do not have money or those who do not have possessions. And, and that's, that's one natural place to go to, and that's, that's part of it. That's part of who the needy are. But let's think back to some, some of the passages that we looked at. We looked at Psalm 82, uh, verses 3 and 4. And, and listen to what that psalm says. It says, Vindicate the weak and the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Think about all the different groups that are listed in that. This is part of our Reach 82 ministry that we're talking about. And it's not just the poor who are mentioned there, but it mentions the weak, those who are the fatherless, uh, those who are the afflicted, those who are the destitute, uh, the weak, the needy, all these are listed there. This covers a whole lot of people, not just those who are, uh, who are poor. Right now, there are 1.1 billion people in this world who do not have access to clean water. 
these are the needy. Right now, there are estimated to be 2.5 million people who are forced into labor and human trafficking, including sex trafficking. These are the needy. Right now, there are untold countless orphans around the world. These are the needy. Right now, there are Christians being persecuted all over the world. I read on Voice of the Martyrs that Christians in North Korea are being forced to eat grass because that's all they can find to eat. These are the needy. People in Peru that we're going to go visit right now. In their houses that a lot of them live in, they, they don't have much to speak of. And a lot of those just have a fire pit that they cook over in their home. It just fills with smoke. And a lot of them suffer and die from respiratory problems because of that. Those men and women and children are the needy. There, there's a whole, a whole group, a whole ton of people who that we could go on and listen and describe. Maybe there's people in our church right now who just can't afford to pay some medical, medical bills that they have. Could we consider those people in need in our church? Yes. The needy are more than just those who are in poverty. And so as we continue thinking about this, remember that the needy is more than just those who are poor. So that's the first issue that I want us to think about. The second, why so many statistics? Why did I want to tell you so many different statistics? Why do I tell you that there are 1.8 million children dying every year from diarrhea? Why do I need to tell you that human trafficking is a $32 billion a year industry? Why do I need to tell you that young girls are being taken across the border of Nepal and being sold into sex slavery? Why do I need to tell you that? Is it just to tug at your heartstrings? Well, maybe a little. We should feel some compassion when we hear these kind of things. But one of the reasons I want us to hear these statistics is because we're often not aware. It's very, very easy living here in America and being consumed with our own lives and everything that's going on to not even have those kind of things ever enter into our thoughts. And to even realize that those kind of things are going on uh, or throughout the world and even here in our own nation. And it's, it's, not, it's not just out there. Louise Moore was telling me that one in every eight children in Kentucky go to bed hungry every night. Some, some staggering statistics. And knowing these statistics can help open our eyes to see the needs that are out there, the needs throughout the world. And so it's easy to focus on ourselves and not think about those things. But when we hear what's out there, it forces us to look outside of ourselves and see the realities that are out there. Third issue for I want us to consider before we dive into Amos. We can sometimes mistake American poverty for global poverty. Uh, sometimes we, we see the poor in America, and we see that there, there are so many different opportunities, that there are food banks, that there, there are... Uh, government assistance programs, and uh, we, we see all this stuff, and we, we think, well, well, that's just everywhere. Everybody has every opportunity that there, there could possibly be, and that's just, that's just not really the case. When you visit the, uh, the impoverished in Peru, there's just not a whole lot of opportunity that they have. Or if you go into the slums in some of the, the large cities of Africa or Asia, there's, just, there's not many opportunities that they have there. And it's easy for us here in our situation, to, to look 
at people abusing the system and to get jaded, you know? It's easy for us to look at somebody who's, who's just playing the system and say, well, well look at that. They're, they're just wanting to check. So why do I need to be involved in caring for the poor and needy? We need to guard ourselves from that. We need to guard ourselves from, from thinking uh, that kind of way. Here's the danger. The danger is that we get so frustrated with, with the government problems that we, that we see in caring for the poor that we just kind of throw up our hands and say, I don't want to have anything to do with caring for the needy. That's a danger. But when we're, when we're talking about what Scripture says about caring for the needy, we're not talking about government here. We're talking about believers. And what does Scripture say to believers? The problem is that, that whatever you might have with however the government is dealing with whatever when it comes to, to poverty doesn't affect the fact that, that there are 30,000 children all across the world who die every day because they don't have enough to eat. It doesn't affect that statistic. And it doesn't change the fact that Proverbs 29.7 says, the righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. That's part of what our heart should be. The righteous should be concerned for the rights of the poor. Fourth issue. We aren't motivated by guilt. We're motivated by the gospel. That should be our motivation, not that, that we feel guilty because we have a house here and somebody else doesn't have a house. That's not what should motivate us. What should motivate us is the fact that there are billions across the world who are dying and going to a Christless eternity. That's what should tug at our heartstrings, and that's what should be our motivation. And as we seek to meet the physical needs of those around around us and here in Kentucky and in America and throughout the world, one thing that we're thinking of is that we're not just meeting their physical needs, but we're meeting their spiritual needs as we take the gospel to them. That is the greatest need that is out there. And as believers, we're called to meet that need. Take the gospel to those who do not have it. Okay, so those are just a few preliminary issues. Just a few things to think about as we get started with Amos. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Amos. We're going to be jumping back and forth in Amos for a few minutes. <clears throat> Amos was a book written in the mid-700s B.C. Uh, it's the time before Israel was defeated by the country of Assyria. And right now, in the land of Israel, there's great economic prosperity. Just They are having just a great time uh, in which uh, uh, prosperity is growing. People are getting wealthier and wealthier. And, and so this is kind of the economic situation that we see when we're starting out here in Amos. And the way Amos starts out is Amos is presenting these judgments against the nations. And these are nations and cities that have plagued the country of Israel for decades and for centuries, really. And so as these things, as these judgments are being read off, you can imagine the people of Israel almost cheering when they hear about the, the country of uh, the people of the, of the Philistines being judged by God and Syria being judged by God, by God because all these countries have been warring against and fighting against Israel for years and years and years. And Amos says things like, in verse 3 of chapter 1, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. And for a full chapter, it goes on like this, describing the cities that are against Israel that are going to be destroyed. And Israel, at this point, is excited about that until God starts talking about them. 
until, until God starts listing out the judgments against Israel. And so we start out with finding out what's going to happen in Amos 2, starting at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who pant after the very dust of the earth and the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble, and a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And God says, I will judge Israel. So we're going to see four truths as we look at the book of Amos. The first, first truth is one that we looked at also last week, is that God judges those who do not care for the needy. And that's what we just read in, uh, in 2, 6 through 8 here. Listen, it's interesting that the first things that are listed, listed here in 2, 6, what are the sins that are described here? The sins that are described here are them oppressing the needy, holding down those who are poor. They are selling the righteous for money, the needy for a pair of sandals. They don't see the needy as worth anything more than just a pair of shoes. And so I'll sell them for that amount. And they are uh, turning aside the helpless and turning aside uh, the way of the humble. And for one, if you'll flip over to that, listen to the words that are used here. These, these are some harsh words. Hear this, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountains of Samaria who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. Do you know who he's say, talking about there when he says, you cows of Bashan? He's talking about the women of Israel. And so he's using some pretty bold language when he's talking about some of these people. You cows of Bashan who oppress the poor, crush the needy, say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink calls them out. Now, why does he, why does he say there uh, in that last line, um, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink? Why? Who cares about that? What's going on here is they were just living for their own self-indulgence, just laying around, being lazy, enjoying life, ordering their husband, bring me something to drink so I can lay here and take it easy. It's, it's this pattern of of living for their own luxury and self-indulgence and ignoring those who are around them. Now, husbands don't, I, I saw some husbands smile, you know, be careful what you say and how you use this passage, uh, that kind of thing. I'll just say that and leave it there. <coughs> uh, here, here's what's going on. Uh, husbands, I was just trying to save you from a little trouble. You, we need that sometimes. Uh, here's what's going on. They were living for their own indulgence, and they were ignoring the poor and the needy around them. This goes right back to Deuteronomy 15. Remember we looked at Deuteronomy 15 last week? Deuteronomy 15 was some pretty clear statement about what they were supposed to do. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. But here's what you should do. You shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. This was a command that was given to them. This was a command that they were ignoring entirely, living for their own luxury. 5.11 says, you trample on the poor, you exact taxes of grain from him. 
8, 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample the needy, you do away with the humble of the land, saying, when, the new moon, when will the noon be over, new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel big, bigger to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. When will it be that we can even oppress the poor more? We want it that much that we're going to look for opportunities to oppress them. And as we're thinking about this, remember that we talked about last week, it's not simply about oppressing those who are needy. It's about ignoring them also. Remember we talked about Sodom. Their sin, it wasn't necessarily they were oppressing the needy. But Ezekiel said that they were ignoring them. They were ignoring the needy. Now listen to what, listen to what the judgment is that God's going to bring on them. Uh, this is in uh, uh, 4.2. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. This is right after where he calls them the cows of Bashan who have oppressed and ignored the poor. You know what's going on here? God is saying, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send an army to you. They're going to break down the walls in the, in the walls that are surrounding your city. They're going to make holes in it. They're going to march through, and they're going to put a hook through your nose, and they are going to tie a rope around that, and they're going to pull you out by that hook in your nose. That's the judgment I am bringing upon you, Israel, for failing to do what I have called you to do, being my people and caring for those in need. That's a harsh, harsh judgment by God. But God made it very clear what they were to do in caring for the needy and how they were to follow him, and they disobeyed him in both. It's the second truth. It is possible to be religious, yet incur God's judgment for not caring for the needy. It's possible to be religious, yet incur God's judgment for not caring for the needy. It's not like the people of Israel here were just these total pagans who had nothing to do with God. On the outside, in a lot of ways, they looked like they were doing things right. They had a lot of religious activity that was going on. Look at 4 again, starting at verse 4. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened. And proclaim free will offerings. Make them known. For so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord. It says they love to go out and put on their religious show, giving their thank offerings and making their sacrifices, bringing their tithes in. And so this is a people who were regularly doing this. So what does God say in regard to that? Turn over to verse nine or chapter 9. Start at verse 3. Here's what's going to happen. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my side on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity for, before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. They are putting on a religious outward show. But God says that you will still be judged because of failing to care for those in need. The third truth, 
it is possible to have empty religion if we neglect the needy. This is really closely related to what came before. It's possible to have empty religion if we neglect the needy. Remember, Israel, they were still doing religious activities. They were offering these sacrifices. But listen, listen to what God responds to their worship and what he says about it. This is uh, in 521. So turn there, flip there, look at this. These are some powerful, harsh words that God uses. Verse 21, I hate, I reject your festivals nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. It's a pretty harsh statement that God uses in regard to their religious activities that they were doing. So what, what should they have been doing instead? What would have made it so it's not empty? Well, obviously, if, they, if their heart had been in true worship. But also, listen to what's listed in verse 24. This is what he wanted. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Righteousness, you should have been doing this from a right, God-centered heart. But, but what else was there? Justice. Let justice roll down like waters. Rather than overlooking, ignoring the needy, and oppressing them. You should have been caring for them. Then you wouldn't have had empty religion. If your heart had been right, and if you'd been doing what I said by caring for them, it wouldn't be empty. It wouldn't be worthless. I wouldn't say to you that I hate, I, I despise your festivals. This isn't, this isn't just here in Amos. Flip over to Isaiah 58 for just a second. Isaiah uh, 58, this is a, a powerful passage describing uh, the people of Israel. And uh, listen, listen to, to verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 58. Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Here it is. They seek me day by day and delight to know my, na- my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. They want to do their sacrifices, and they're putting on this outward religious show. But what is it? What is it that God really desires? Look at verse 6. This uh, in verse 5. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is it the outward show that you're supposed to be doing? Verse 6, here's the fast that God wants. Is this not the fast which I, which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then here's the result when you have that fast that God desires. Then your light will break out like the dawn. Your recovery will speedily spring forth. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you give yourself to the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you'll be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not 
fail. But yet they had empty religion because they failed to do the things that God commanded them. Now when it lists out those things that they're to do, there in verse 6, 7, and 8, uh, that describe the, the fast that God is looking for, does that not sound a lot like what we're describing in the Reach 82 ministry, the caring for the needy that we're talking about, that, that uh, undo the bands of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, dividing bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into the house, seeing the naked and covering them, and not hiding yourself from your own flesh. To care for the needy. This isn't just Old Testament. It's throughout the, the, the New Testament also. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, and he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. They were carrying out the smallest religious detail, but they would not, they would not, they refused to do what they were supposed to be doing about caring for the needs of of those around them. Do you hear Jesus denouncing them here? Because they neglected justice and mercy, which we would just call caring for the needy. All right, the fourth truth. This is, this is the one that, that may hit home the most. It is not okay to gain all we can to live solely for our own luxury. It is not okay to gain all that we can to live solely for our own luxury. Here's what the people of Israel were doing. They were living only for their own self-gratification. They were living only for their own luxury, for their own selfish uh, indulgence. Their desire was for their own luxury. So what did they do? They did anything they could to get more for themselves. So if they, could, if they could get more for themselves by trampling on the poor, that's what they would do. They would actually look for ways to go do this. So they sold the righteous for money, the needy for a pair of sandals. We don't consider them worthwhile, so we'll sell them just for a pair of shoes. They would cheat with dishonest scales. So what they would do is they were selling something, then they would try to, um, to sell less of a product for more money that they would get. And so they would, they would cheat with scales. So if they had a, a stone that was supposed to be one pound on the scale, they, would, they might have a little smaller stone. So rather than pound, it would be like 14 ounces. Of course, they use different measurements, but you get the idea of what's going on there. They would cheat. They were dishonest in how they did this. They would turn aside the poor at the gate. That's, that's Amos 5.12. So what does that mean, turning aside the poor at the gate? They would just neglect them, overlook them. No, we're not going to have anything to do with you. They ignored them. They oppressed them because they were seeking to have their own luxury. When Spurgeon uh, preached on Amos, this is what he called them. He called the people. He called them self-indulgent. And I think that's pretty accurate. Listen to the self-indulgences that they had. They, they would do anything that they could to oppress the poor so they'd have more for themselves. And this is what it says. Amos 3.15, they lived in their many houses of ivory. Uh, Amos 4.1, the women lounged around drinking and being merry. Uh, Amos 6, uh, flip back over uh, to that. Listen to that. Amos 6, verse 4. Those who recline on beds of ivory, they sprawl on their couches. They eat lambs from the flock, calves from the midst of the stall. They improvise to the sound of the harp. Like David, they compose songs for themselves. They drink wine from sacrificial bowls. They anoint themselves with the finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So this, this brings us to an important point. Are these things wrong in and of themselves? Was it wrong for them to have 
an ivory couch? Was it wrong for them to eat lamb or to have calves? Arthur, is it wrong to have a cow? Is it wrong to have fine oils? No. Think about when Jesus, there was a woman there pouring very extremely expensive oil over him. So is it wrong for her to do that? No. Not at all. Here's the point. It's wrong to indulge ourselves and live only for our luxury when we ignore the needy around us. That's what they were doing. They were getting more and more and more for themselves and, ex- and totally ignoring the needs of those around, us, around them. J.M. Boyce, one of the greatest pastors of the 20th century, he wrote these words about Amos 6. We who have means cannot get off the hook as easily as that. For the point of these verses is that wealth tends to make us self-indulgent. After all, I earned it. I have a right to spend it on myself if I want to. So wealth tends to make us self-indulgent and indifferent to others. As a general rule, we can say that the more we have, the less generous we become. More cash, more dash, more substance, more indulgence. Listen to what I'm saying here. Catch this. We need to make sure we don't mistake this. Wealth is not wrong of itself. Absolutely not. Wealth is not wrong in itself. Money is not wrong in and of itself. Luxury is not wrong in and of itself. But if we live solely for our own comfort, our own luxury, then that is when we are wrong. To seek to gain more and more and more, just swing spin and live more and more for ourselves while we ignore the needy around us, this is wrong. This isn't just Old Testament. It's New Testament also. It's all throughout Scripture. And it really shouldn't surprise us that we see this truth in Scripture. shouldn't surprise us at all. Think about, think about all the things in Scripture that, that describe our resources, what we have. We're told that God is the God who owns everything. He's the God who has a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. So it's his anyway, it's not ours. We're, we're told that, that we're t- commanded to give a portion of what we receive off the top uh, to the ministry of the church. So obviously we can't keep everything that we have uh, for our own selves and for our own uh, luxury. Uh, think about New Testament, Acts 2. If we, if we see the needy around us, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to meet the needs of the body around us. What was the new church doing? Uh, they were selling their possessions to care for other members of the body. 1 John 3, what does it tell us to do? If you see a needy brother or sister among you, care for that needy brother or sister. If you don't, how can you say that the love of the Lord is in you? Psalm 67 tells us we're blessed to be a blessing. New Testament tells us over and over, guard your hearts against stuff. Be satisfied. Don't love stuff. Guard yourselves from the love of money because it's a root of all kinds of evil. So we see this kind of a thing over and over and over again. So it should come as any surprise to us that Scripture is pretty clear that we shouldn't just solely be living for our own luxury, our own self-indulgence, but part of what we have should be going to care for those in need. So what do we do with all this? What can we conclude? Just, just three quick things. Remember, God judges those who do not care for the needy. Number two, thinking about Amos, consider if we have empty religion because we have outward religious appearance, but we're failing to do the things that God commands of us. This, listen to this, none of us, none of us are above this. None of us are above just having empty religious activity. It's a danger that each and every one of us face, just going through the motions day after day, going to church, 
doing your Bible study or whatever. That's a danger for all of us. Are we just going through motions of empty religion? If we are, maybe it's just time to repent of that. Third thing, consider if we're living solely for our own luxury. This is one of the hardest things because it requires really looking close at our motives and what we're doing. And, and honestly, this is, this, this is a tough thing uh, because if you're like me, you're selfish. And that, that's one of the, the things about the nature of our hearts. If you look at your heart, I know if I look at mine, unfortunately, I see a lot of selfishness there. And my tendency is just to want for me, me, me. And so it takes an honest look at our hearts. Are we living for our own luxury? A couple questions to ask with this. First, consider if your heart is consumed with living for your own self-indulgence. And be honest with yourself. Think about that. And then second, consider how you can use your resources to meet the needs of others. And, and this is where it gets a little tricky. Because there's nowhere in Scripture that says, hey, you have to give X percent of, your, of what you have to caring for the needy. never says anything like that. And I think that one of the reasons for that is so that we will wrestle about this and think about this. And so it will be on our hearts and minds. So we'll come together as families and talk about this and wrestle with this. And then we'll go before God and ask, how is it that you want me to use my resources in regard to this? Could it be that uh, does, does caring for the needy mean that you're going to make yourself destitute, give all that you have to the poor? Probably not. Jesus commanded that of one person in Scripture, but probably not for all of us. Does it mean never having anything nice for yourself? Probably not. We see pretty good evidence that it's okay to have a few nice things. Does it mean that you can't have a house? Probably not. Does it mean some kind of sacrifice on our parts? Probably. Definitely. Caring for the needy is going to require some kind of sacrifice. Monetary, time, whatever. It's going to require that. So over this week, think about some of these things. Think about how we can use our resources to care for the needy. We're going to continue talking about this, and we're going to have, don't forget, May the 16th, we're going to have a time of coming together and just learning.